Hello and welcome to another episode of Finding Peaks. I'm Jason Friesma, the host, Chief Clinical Officer, Peaks Recovery. Uh, joining me from Peaks, Brandon Burns, uh, mm -hmm. CEO of Peaks Recovery, and this guy, I forget his name, Clinton something, uh, <laughs> yeah. COO of uh, Peaks Recovery. And we are um, just privileged uh, to welcome TJ Woodward uh, from Conscious Recovery, uh, LA area, I believe, um, yes. joining us today. And uh, we, we've had the privilege of having um, TJ in our program uh, for the last two days, providing, um, I don't think training is the right word, if I'm gonna be honest with you. I, yeah. I, there was some training to it, but um, I think an experience maybe for our team. And so um, I guess I just kind of want to start, if you, TJ, if you wouldn't mind kind of introducing yourself and maybe a little bit of your background and, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, well, I'm TJ Woodward, creator of Conscious Recovery and Conscious Recovery is a modality, but it really is more of an experience, yeah. like you said. And as a matter of fact, we even call what we just did for two days the conscious recovery experience mm -hmm. because it's not a training because we're not really teaching. Mm -hmm. We're providing a space for people to actually reconnect deeply with themselves and each other and see what emerges in the room. Yeah. So um, that's, that's what we did the last two days. And I just want to like out of, right out of the gate say, I'm super impressed with your team and the depth. <laughs> and you know, I go to a lot of treatment programs and I can immediately kind of assess where people are at and, you all have created a very, very safe container for your people to be very authentic and open. Awesome. Thank you for that. that. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's a wrap. Thanks for coming. <laughs> like a, <laughs> yeah. We got um, the sound bite? Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> all we needed. And uh, let's go to yeah. dinner. Um, but no, I really, um, I appreciate you. Honestly, um, there's no higher compliment you could pay. I think um, mm -hmm. it is what we work diligently on is um, our culture and um, working through uh, disruption at times and, and trying to do that in as genuine a way as possible and yeah. trying to find directionality and, and vision for our team. And I think um, conscious, re conscious recovery, just um, like the chatter that I'm hearing from the clinicians, like my phone is blowing up and like, how are we, how can we incorporate uh, some of these principles into our curriculum? And, and it isn't a 180 turn, that's what's great. It's, it feels like yeah. a 10 degree shift. Like we just have some refining to do, which uh, I'm, I'm really excited to participate in. But where did, what was conscious recovery born out of? Like where did it come from? Well, I can, I, I'll say two things about that. One, my own personal recovery journey. Uh, and it's something I've been talking a lot about. There were decades I never talked about it. And suddenly I find myself talking about being 18 months sober and being suicidal and the paradigm that I was swimming in, if you will, sounded something like, don't worry about anything but not drinking, you are a miracle, go help someone else. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, but I wanna die. Mm -hmm. And there really wasn't a conversation at that time of what to do with that. And I met a woman who literally changed my life, her name is Mary Helen, and she took me on a journey that I think was a twofold, a twofold journey, and that is re reclaiming my wholeness and returning to my true nature, and also looking at everything that I had started to believe about myself in the world that was preventing me from being truly present with myself. So that's one piece, and I also started working in the addiction treatment field in 2008, and I quickly realized that most treatment was looking at symptoms and behaviors mm -hmm. without getting down to the root causes. In addition to that, many clinicians 
consciously or unconsciously, were looking at their clients as damaged or broken in some way. So if anything, it was like there was this resonance from my own experience of not really addressing the underlying root causes and seeing myself as broken and then coming into the field and seeing that that was kind of the paradigm. Mm -hmm. uh, so I became really curious about a different point of view and a different approach. Um, I know that we share a common um, love for the word and the concept and the way of being with curiosity. Yeah. So I became very curious about how I could be part of shifting that and offering a different approach. Mm, awesome, yeah. So from the get-go, like, what were some of the um, barriers that you ran into as far as kind of taking on this new approach or sort of trying to create something that was at the very least outside the box for the time? And then also, what were some of the allies that you ran into? What were some of the people that actually supported you along the way? Well, I'll, I'll just be fully transparent. In 2008, I had to kind of be in the closet with it. So yeah. I came into the field sort of through the side door. My education, my degrees are in spirituality, spiritual counseling, spiritual leadership. So I didn't come in as a trained clinician. Mm -hmm. I came in with 22 years of my own recovery and this work I had done with spirituality. And so I came in knowing that I was going to be present with the person in front of me and look for what's whole within them and look for their perfection. Mm -hmm. I wasn't really talking with many people about that. But one thing that happened early in my work, um, a friend of mine who was a therapist was really struggling with a client and he said, can you go sit with her? And I remember just sitting with her and looking for the wholeness in her and holding that space. We hear that term a lot, mm -hmm. holding that space. And she had all these awarenesses and these breakthroughs. And he came to me later and said, what did you say to her? I have been trying to get her to, like his language, I've been trying to get her. And I said, well, I didn't say anything. I just saw her as a whole and perfect being. And he looked like something was short-circuiting and walked away. <laughs> so in the beginning, yeah. that was a long answer, but in the beginning, yeah. there weren't a lot of allies. But yeah, what sure. I discovered is so many people that I loved and respected we're really doing this work. Maybe they weren't talking about it or framing it in the way of how do I behold the wholeness in a person, but we found this commonality. And what I love now is more and more of us are having this conversation and there is a dramatic shift now. Absolutely. So how do you hold space for people? What does that mean to you? Like, what is that? Because you just mentioned, you know, it's a term, we like to throw terms around here in the old treatment world, you know, trauma, informed care, holding space. What in the world does that even mean? I'll tell you what it means for me. What it means for me, and, and you know, I, I, I use this quote today in the training and yesterday, even though it was kind of spontaneous, you know, Dolly, Dolly Parton, who I love, yeah. said it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. Yeah, for and, sure. Uh, what I'll say is it takes a lot of work to look like I'm doing nothing. Yeah. <laughs> right, to hold space truly, because we hear that term thrown around, and usually that looks like something like, oh, I'm just gonna be, you know, I'm gonna listen to you. Sure. Which is holding space. But what I'm talking about is being truly present and being curious with someone and not trying to direct or control or have my own bias on that. We talked about that yesterday at lunch, yeah. right? Having our own unconscious biases and how that shows up. So to the best of my ability, am I really present with you? Yeah. Or am I responding or diagnosing or solution seeking in my mind? Mm -hmm. So holding space really is about being truly present with someone so that they can have their own inner journey and start to connect with their own inner wisdom. Well, I'll, I'll quote Pema Chodron, yeah. who, who talked about empathy being knowing your own darkness well enough to sit in the dark with another. Yeah. 
So interesting. I used that quote today in the Did conscious you? recovery experience, mm -hmm. you know, at Peaks. She, talks, she says, compassion is not a relationship between the healer and the wounded, but between two equals. Mm. Only when we know our own darkness well can we be present with the darkness in another. And I actually add to that, only when I know my own light well can I be present with the light in another. Interesting. I think that's great. Sorry. <laughs> and then there's a the space, right? Yeah, that's yeah. the space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's interesting that you come from this uh, spirituality background um, and, it, and you know, to just be transparent with you, it's something that we are exploring at Peaks too, is like, okay, we, I think we've done a good job. We, we do a pretty good job of helping people kind of figure out um, some of the, where, where their shame roots are and their seeds and all that and, and we do a good excavation process and I think we do a pretty good job helping people build containers for some of, this, some of these things and build some of those school tools but launching people into purpose and spirituality has been, that's our next frontier, I think. And, and it's probably not just with Peaks. I think that's probably the case across the board. And um, I, wonder, uh, I wonder if you can just speak to that a little bit and just speak to the spiritual journey um, and how it relates to conscious recovery. Yeah, so spirituality obviously is one of those words that might, people have all their own connotations of what that means. Yeah. And so I'm very careful in conscious recovery to say, what does it mean to you? not what does it mean to me. What I will say though is I've identified the three root causes of addiction as unresolved trauma, spiritual disconnection, and toxic shame. I will speak about what I mean by spiritual disconnection because it's not about connection, disconnection from something outside of ourselves. It is that we came into the world as a whole and perfect being and then we were programmed, whether we call that trauma or you know, points of view or school or religion or all these different things that come at us, if you will, that program us to believe that we're not essentially whole and perfect, that we're not this infinite being. And so we disconnect from that, from this trauma and develop shame and these core false beliefs. So to me, reconnecting with our true nature or our essential being really is what spirituality is about. For some that might include religion, for some that might include yoga, for some, that might include walks in nature. The externals might look really different, but all of it to me, the essential core of spirituality is about a reconnection to something that's already here, not about a destination to attaining something that's missing. Mm. Mm. Love that. Well, you know, my follow-up there is the trauma word, Jason. You know how much I, I love I was waiting for you it to as a topic, but right. you know, for the viewers out there, we've, <laughs> we've challenged trauma, we've walked through it, we've done episodes on it, but I think, you know, for me in reading Conscious Recovery in your text and also going through uh, the experience over the past few days, I think your view of trauma is correct. And <laughs> what I mean by that is that I think sometimes as an industry, we hyper-focus on the hardship, the actual traumatic event itself. We somehow have to uproot that, get it out the door, and then we can sort of continue forward on our journey. But that's not the focus from your description of trauma. And would just love for the viewers to hear uh, your side of that tale. Yeah, and trauma is, you know, I'm using a very broad umbrella, if you will, about trauma, and that's any experience, honestly, where we're not seen as a whole and perfect being. And so if we use that definition, yeah. we can say that being on planet Earth is a traumatic experience, mm -hmm. right? Sure. And so it's not, and, and we talked about this a lot in the experience, and I love that you're asking this, because it's not what happened, it is what happened, but it's not only about what right. happened. It's really about what I decided about myself mm -hmm. as a result of what happened. 
So one, you know, we could have the exact same experience and it could be very traumatic for you and it's like, no big deal for me, right? Yeah. Um, I have had experiences that would seem fairly innocuous, like not a big deal to people, but it was very traumatic for me. Not because of what happened, but because it was that moment that I decided I was stupid, I wasn't lovable, I wasn't good enough, and this isn't logical. Right, right. This right. is not a logical process because as an adult, I'm like, oh, I have evidence to show that I'm not stupid, but I believed it so deeply that I couldn't read well, I could not write well. Like that idea, that belief or that frequency was showing up so consistently and I couldn't talk myself out of it. Yeah. So, you know, um, I don't remember which trauma specialist said this, but trauma doesn't show up as a memory it shows up as a reaction. Mm -hmm. So the way we work with trauma and the way conscious recovery approaches it is what's showing up for you right now, what's present within you, where is this in your body? Can we be present with it? Because mm -hmm. with addiction, we're trying to run from it. Right. right. And many of us have spent decades, some of us, running from the traumatic experience through addiction. And if we can get a client just to be present for 30 seconds mm -hmm. and realize, oh wow, I can do that, that's where we actually can start to heal the trauma without saying what happened to you when you, when you were seven. Mm -hmm. Beautiful viewers, that's what I'm talking about right there. That's, <laughs> that's what Brandon's been trying to say. That's what I've been trying time. to say for the last 100 episodes <laughs> in one way or shape or form. So I, I greatly appreciate it and yeah. so well told. Um, uh, and, and I think getting to the third you know, issue here and what the cause is, right, toxic shame. Uh, they seem back-to-back -back in a way. Yeah. Um, are they back-to-back? -back? Are they a toxic shame to unresolved trauma? Or are they walking alongside each other? How are those interrelated? And how does conscious recovery approach that relationship? You know, when I wrote the book, I really sat with what's the order mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. these three root causes. And I changed yeah. it. I changed it because I don't remember what the original order was. But I realized in my own journey that I did come into the world as a whole and perfect being. And a mm -hmm. series of traumatic events happened. And then I disconnected. And because I disconnected, I developed shame. So for me, unresolved trauma, spiritual disconnection, and toxic shame are in that order. It doesn't mean that's true for everyone. Sure. But these all exist within us. Um, and again, I, I want to go back because I think there's such importance in trauma isn't about what happened, mm -hmm. but it's what we decided. W when did I separate from myself? Mm -hmm. In my own journey, I actually remember a moment that I closed down. Most people don't have that moment. But when I was seven, I remember feeling the physical sensation of my heart closing. And it was at that moment that I made these core decisions that we can call shame. I'm unworthy and I'm not lovable. And so from that moment throughout my life, every experience I had was going back to those core false decisions or core false beliefs. So that shame was running the show even though on a conscious level, I had no idea that's what was happening. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, well stated. Yeah, I think that, uh, I mean, I think that's just a beautiful way of explaining the how, like how we end up where we are. And I'm always curious about, so what do we do about it, right? So that's always the piece that I, I mean, Jason is probably the most brilliant how therapist I've ever met. 
I mean, I don't know. We've got to. And that ends the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't know. We've got a close second here, Jason. Yeah, but, um, really, it, it's, I think that we get people to this, to, to quite a bit of insight. And to Jason's point earlier, like we really do um, excavate well uh, in the sense that we are not uh, attempting to just focus on what was the trauma, but also what were the messages that came from it. So you've, let's say you've established some of that. What do you do next? Like, what is the next step in that process in the conscious recovery journey? Well, so I want to start with what it's not for me or what it's okay. not only, right? Because a lot of the modalities will say things like opposite action or um, use affirmations or change your narrative. And I think that's all useful, right? So the opposite action one is if I believe I'm stupid, well, take a class realize that you're not, you're not actually stupid. So you can find evidence that's contrary to the core false belief. But a lot of that's still in the mind, right? Mm -hmm. And I realized um, at some point in my own journey that it wasn't a logical or a cognitive process because the core false belief developed before my brain was even developed enough to understand what was happening. So it wasn't that I had to talk myself out of it. No, you're not stupid, right? That's the affirmation. I am very smart, I am capable. And all of that is useful, but with conscious recovery, we're saying, where did it originate? What was the experience of that? Not what happened, but what was the experience of that? How is that still alive within you? And can we go back and look at the possibility that we can make a, a different decision? Not in our mind as a 25-year-old or a 60-year-old or however old we are, but as that four-year-old, as that six-year-old. So we could call that inner child work, but mm -hmm. what I'm really saying is, and I, I got myself into some trouble, so I think it'll be fun to say it in this interview. So <laughs> one of the, I think it was a clinical director came to me during, I was at a treatment program and she said, a clinician just told me you said you could change the past. I'm sure you didn't say that. And <laughs> I said it. Ooh. <laughs> and I'm gonna say what I meant. <laughs> the only past, past that actually exists is the past in my mind. Mm -hmm. It's the story that I'm carrying. And so we know eyewitnesses. If, we, if something happens on the street, we see an accident, the four of us will have a different story. Right. Yeah. And it, does it mean one's true and one's not? No, we just have a different lens. And so it's not, again, it's not what happened. So I'm carrying around a story about a traumatic event, and it may not have even happened the way that I thought it did. What I'm not saying is we're going to say to someone, oh, it probably never happened, like someone who has sexual trauma or something. That's a very real thing. But what I'm really saying is a repeat. It's not as much about what happened, but more about what I decided. Mm -hmm. So if I can start to care for the five-year-old, the six-year-old, that inner child can start to make a different decision with more information. Rather than saying, I'm broken because this happened, or this was my fault, or I'm damaged in some way. And the steps really are feeling. It's OK to feel that way. Because most of us push the feeling down, or it wasn't safe, or we left our bodies, or we used whatever, what we used to call coping strategies that I call brilliant strategies to manage that. And it really is about getting down to that when that originated, not so much what happened, but what we decided. Maybe we can make a different decision. Kind of changes the past, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting. Too provocative? We okay? No, we're great. Okay, good. Yeah. We're good. We I like provocative great. here. I think, yeah. you know, for, for me, it, it highlights, I, I think we're, you know, I think sometimes, if not oftentimes, family systems, individuals within family systems struggle with 
why is Johnny behaving like this? Why does he, he just needs to get a job, needs to get some structure in his life, you know, tighten his boots and get out there into the world and like do the thing. And then we start talking about some like trauma, like whoa, you know, and it sort of a, uh, a deflection starts to take place or like that can't be a possible reason for which some of that's too foo-foo-y or whatever the case might be for lack of better words. But what I want to highlight and what you did there is that, that path to empathy for the viewers and family systems who struggle with what the individual is going through because we've all been at a party, a place, a mall, a setting somewhere, and we have these awesome experiences where we're gathered with our friends and in relationship with family systems, and then we get home and we call and say, wasn't that the greatest time? And we tell our story, and then our friend on the other line is like, that's not what happened you know, mm -hmm. in that moment. And I think that's powerful to appreciate that this isn't just within these settings where the narratives right. get disrupted. It's often the case that we're experiencing the world differently, right. and that showcases, I hope, for family systems out there um, how these narratives can go from a real positive thing for person A, but a real devastating thing for person B, even though the setting was the same for both individuals. Yeah, and we often hear there's your version, my version, and the truth is in the middle. Mm -hmm. But I actually say they're both 100% accurate yeah. because of our lens. Mm -hmm. yeah. And let's like even pull that back a little bit more and look at politics, look at religion, look at everything happening in the world. If we were just to say your point of view is 100% valid because it's your lens, <laughs> Imagine yeah. the change that could happen instantly, yeah. Yeah. right? And it's because we're so deeply entrenched in good and bad and right and wrong mm -hmm. that it's not always easy for us to see that all of it is correct based on our point of view. Mm -hmm. And when we can start to work with a client and say, is it possible you're creating reality based on the lens at which you're looking at life through, not from a place of blame or from a place of right and wrong, but from a place of curiosity, then we can say, wow, if you're not happy with your life, how do we clear that lens? How do we start looking at what we're in? I go back to the same thing, core false beliefs. If I believe I'm unlovable, I will literally see it everywhere. It's not possible to see anything else. As much evidence comes my way to not support that, I will reject it, right? And I'll find that person or that situation to confirm the core false belief. And this is all for most of us happening in the unconscious. And so many treat, much, a lot of treatment, a lot of um, therapeutic modalities focus on what we can see. Mm -hmm. But what we really want to do is like, what's the unseen here? Yeah. And how do we start to heal that? Yeah, and, and just one final, you know, or addition to that too, just to support the family systems out there who have trouble, you know, tracking the story that they're being told by their loved one. It's like, I went to buy a red car and I was like, there are no other red cars like this in the city of Colorado <coughs> Springs, only right. Subarus. <laughs> and I, at that moment, bought the car, and then I'm driving around, and I see all the everywhere. red cars again, right? <laughs> it went from this very, yeah. it's non-existent to it's existing everywhere. And I think that we commonly have these experiences as individuals, you know, community, society, and so forth. Um, and so I think it brings closer to the viewers the opportunity to have empathy for what the individual has seen because we have these common and shared experiences. Yeah, because in family systems, well, I'll say in my family system, there was a, a lot of like, no, that's not true. That's not what's happening. Mm -hmm. But it was true for me, yeah. right? And so that empathy or that compassion or that openness to saying, wow, you see that differently than I do. I wonder what that's about, right? And then we go back to the curiosity. And so if I'm working with someone or if there's someone in my family who is struggling with an addiction, rather than judging that, let me be curious about that. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So I'm gonna pivot the conversation just Great. a little. I, mean, we, I could talk some more about trauma and 
but I, I decided not to. Um, <laughs> but Brandon, so the three of us had your experience yesterday, and, and Brandon, I want to start with you. I, I'd love to hear kind of what it was like for you and, and maybe what shifted for you a little bit. Because it go. seemed impactful. Here we go. Doing therapy now. All right. Um, <laughs> no, you're just talking about yourself. It's yes. not the same. Jeez. Uh, you're too powerful. Unless in that. it is. You're too, powerful. <laughs> too powerful in the host seat, Jason. I don't like yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> um, well, I, uh, you know, jokes aside, I greatly appreciated the whole experience. Actually, you know, we, we've been dealing with a lot, you know, from out, outside pressure in the peaks and, you know, we've got a full census, variety of different things going on. So work has been a challenging environment. I actually went into the day thinking like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, put my toe in the water just for a second. I'm gonna go back to my office and work, but uh, quickly put the laptop down, put it back in the office and was in it. And it was really important that I went through the experience yesterday. It wasn't just a distraction from like the work world, but sort of a grounding in the experience of being a part of my team again mm. uh, and being vulnerable with them. And I, you know, the, the moment where you asked us to kind of look into, you know, each other's eyes for two minutes and just sit there with that, you know, Shana, one of our therapists, that was literally the first formal time I had been sitting with her and here I am with like an employee. And so I think it was grounding and reconnecting, but I also loved, you know, our first little part of the experience together, you know, what is your experience? And just to keep asking that question, you know, to me and commonly a lot of people come and say, well, how was your day? And it's like, okay, well, my day, and it, for me, I always get into a tangent about how my day was, and this was like, how is your day going? It's like, I'm fearful right now. Mm -hmm. You know, we know what that is from the outside pressures and these things we're going through as an operation. Okay, Brennan, what are you experiencing? Um, loneliness. Okay, Brennan, what do you experience? Dang, there's the fear again. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it was just an ability to walk through something. I think I was able to sputter out hope at the end, yeah. you know, within Here's the conversation. <laughs> it was my last response <laughs> or whatever, but it was... It's, a, it's an open-ended question with, that doesn't require like a really long answer to it. And I just felt that was really powerful and right-sized and it reminded me of how like simple this process can be to get inward. Uh, I think that's what you were trying to do, but overall, just starting with that, I just felt um, that it was a powerful experience and applicable almost in any setting. I went home last night with my wife and I was like, just ask me what my experiences are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's going to help this. So, um, so yeah, that would be. No, I appreciate it. I, yeah. I think, yeah, I, it was powerful being in that experience with you too. Clint. What was the question? <laughs> What did you experience what yesterday? What did I experience yeah. yesterday? What are you hmm. experiencing now? <laughs> <laughs> um, gosh, I had, I went through a lot of experiences. I, first of all, I don't get to sit in trainings very often. Um, you experiences. Know, experiences very often, yeah. I'm, and when I do, I'm usually, I, and I, I mean, I'm very transparent about this. I'm very guarded, like mm -hmm. most of the time. I feel a sort of... Um, need to sort of protect the people around me, especially if we're talking about like my team and my staff and the company as a whole, like I just, I just want to protect it. And so it took me a while to, to get out of that space. Mm. Um, and uh, it was, I think the eye contact was probably, the two minutes of eye contact, it's hard to hide, you know? And luckily I was able to, um, the very first person that I engaged um, was, a, a, was a clinician and, um, Man, there's something about that moment and, and her energy just really pulled me down and grounded me. And it allowed me to stay open uh, much longer than I typically allow myself. And so in that sense, it was a reminder of, um, one, it was 
a reminder of how guarded I walk around. Two, it was also a reminder of how easy and how important it is to let that down. Because by letting somebody else in, you get to experience, you know, you talk about, you know, your own lens, but I do think that you can see and f at the very least feel the world through other people's lenses. I really do. If you allow yourself that opportunity and that space and, and then it, for the rest of the day, it allowed us to have, it allowed me to engage in a, a conversation that I would typically be very resistant to. Mm -hmm. um, again, I am a very solution focused guy. I'm a very, like, let's get to the heart of it. Let's figure out how to get through this. Let's, um, let's not process this. Let's push through this. Mm -hmm. And that's as a therapist. So I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that's, um, that, it's also very eye-opening and a very good reminder of um, that in, in a lot of cases, I, is it, I, I had to ask myself that question, is it fair for me to ask a client to go there if I'm not willing to go there myself? So, yeah. Wow. I appreciate you sharing. Yeah. And I, it's the last time Jason frees my <laughs> It's on film, so I'll just watch it over, over and over again. <laughs> Here's the blooper reel. Yeah. Um, and my experience, um, I mean, we, you did a great job allowing us to debrief yesterday, and, uh, mm. which I really appreciated. But I really, um, I, I found so much, I had so many layers of things going on. I was, I honestly was joyful, to be honest with you, in a mm -hmm. lot of ways, because it does feel um, really affirming um, with with what we do. Uh, I I care deeply about these men in this room as much shit as we give each other, but like I really do, and um, I thought it was powerful for you to offer them an experience. Um, I I was proud that as a leadership team, we could show up and be present um, with people and, and really level the playing field, it felt like. like it yeah. just felt like we were all people in there together. And, and I think uh, it set an amazing table for that. And um, it, probably what I left with, too, is like I'm wrestling with this spiritual idea. I've, I have recently called myself spiritually homeless, um, mm -hmm. which seems really similar to your disconnected thing. So that... Mm -hmm. Um, and that's unresolved for me, if I'm going to be transparent. So, um, and Brandon and I have started talking about this a little bit, reading some uh, Alan Watts. But, um, yeah, so I, I, I appreciated it. And, and honestly, one of my other strange experiences is uh, you handed us a pamphlet with um, kind of the five uh, tenets of conscious recovery. Um, but on one of the other folds, like your number one thing is like, are, are you experiencing burnout or something like that? And, and I'm like, oh yeah, this is a salve in a place that I didn't know I needed a salve. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I'm grateful for that. And, and again, I, the energy, um, which we're all pretty attuned to, uh, experienced a shift over the last couple of days and, and, uh, it's pretty powerful and I'm grateful to you for that. Well, thank you. You know, it's. I went to a program maybe three, three years ago, and at the end I asked what stood out, and a young woman said, what on earth does this have to do with self-care? I came here to learn step one, step two, step three, step yeah. four on how mm -hmm. to care for myself more. Yeah. And what you're speaking to is really the intention, and when I, when I left yesterday, I'm like, did we address self-care? And then I have to remind myself. Yeah. And today, something really powerful came up. Someone said, we're talking about caring for the soul. Mm -hmm. 
which is really different than only caring for the body or the mind, right? And so when we think of self-care, we might think of a spa day or extra time off or a vacation. But when our soul is hungry to be fed, that's the soul care. That's what we're really talking about. And what we're really addressing, not, not through words or through a teaching, but through an experience, is, is it possible that our work can be energizing? Mm -hmm. Is it possible that when I'm truly present with someone, without the agenda of wanting to fix someone, that I can actually feel more energized? So not only is the person sitting in front of me going, is it going to be more effective for their own process, but I'm not here to think you're broken and my job is to fix you. And so in working in the field, I see well-meaning clinicians, counselors, mm -hmm. techs, coming to work and like, you know, these people are damaged and broken. They may not say it, but there's a felt sense of it. And my job is to give them the solution and the solution. Yeah. My job is to mm -hmm. fix them. My job is, and that can be really exhausting. And mm -hmm. then we can go into, did I do it right? Why didn't this person get it? Yeah. Why didn't the group go the way I wanted it to? And so when we're open, and so my husband told me to never use the acronym again, but I'm going to use it. Mm -hmm. I say I'm studying to be a cop, curious, open, and present, <laughs> right? When I'm curious, <laughs> open, and present, something emerges that is something so much more powerful. And the reason I'm giving this very long answer is that feeds the soul. Mm -hmm. That energizes me on a way that's way beyond taking an extra day off, yeah. way beyond setting a boundary. We talked a lot about that today. <laughs> setting boundaries. I know why. Yeah. And of course yeah. I'm provocative. I'm like, what if we don't need boundaries? Not in the way that we believe yeah. that we do, right? You have to delete a bunch of old Finding Peaks if that's yeah. the case. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, we can talk about that. Yeah, we yeah. can talk about that. But I, I'm speaking yeah. of the energetic boundary, right? Absolutely. Am I guarded? Am I guarded yeah. with the person I'm in front of? And how we might think that that's actually protecting ourselves, but actually that might be what's depleting us. Mm. So when I take that down and I'm a human being with you, and I would say a spiritual being with you, mm -hmm. there's something that happens that can be really energizing. So yeah. at the end of a long day of work, like at the end of today, I might be physically tired, but I'm, I'm emotionally and spiritually energized. Mm -hmm. You know, living on purpose and being um, a person who has meaning and purpose that you talked about. Yeah. And I love that you're bringing that into your program because a lot of programs aren't addressing that. Yeah. I don't think someone can stay sober by what they don't want. Mm. I just don't want to go. I don't want to go to jail again. I don't want my wife to leave me. All those things. What do I want? Mm. Right? And I want to be fed. We all want love and connection. And when we experience that, it's energizing. Absolutely. Yeah. It, you know, you're... you're, you're approach in book, I, th I think it does, and rightfully so, and I think uh, challenges the disease model, and the disease model is being challenged on multiple fronts these yeah. days, uh, so I think it's very right size, uh, but to that sort of diagnosis, the patient, you know, clients in front of you, and it's like, okay, they're broken, and I've got to somehow fix this, you know, going through the process yesterday, I don't, I haven't been able to be in a good group setting in a while, so it was nice to be a part of that. Um, you know, uh, intervention that you'd created for six of us within it, but what was spectacular about it is how, how, how little work you were actually doing and how energized the group became. And back to the disease model, you weren't trying to fix anything right. uh, within that setting and you allowed for a healing process to really sort of start like a flywheel to start taking place within that moment. It reminds me of one of the metaphors that came up uh, yesterday, you know, like when somebody cuts themselves, you know, 
outside of a significantly deep wound that requires you know, emergency room attention, right? If you, if you kind of just nurture it and let it sit there, the body will heal itself. And it reminds me here that in spirituality, it has the ability to heal itself as a process. Uh, and being in that setting, uh, clearly reminded of that potential that we're talking about healing versus fixing. And curious if you wanted to speak just a little bit more well, to that. Well, you know my intention is that we all change our name from treatment center to healing center, mm -hmm. yeah. and then eventually like a wholeness center or a wellness mm -hmm. center. But this idea that you're sharing that like our body does naturally fix itself, so does our mind and so does our spirit, but we often can't do it alone. Right. That's the paradox, right? The issue is in the Western medical model, we're like, what are your symptoms and how do we get rid of them, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And so addiction is a symptom and it looks it's not a pretty one right yeah. and so no one says oh it's great that you keep going back to jail or it's great that you keep you know doing cocaine at your work um we're not saying that all that what we're saying is that's a symptom of something mm -hmm. and what's actually beneath that and how can we actually start to heal that and return to our wholeness so my job isn't to diagnose and treat you but it's to be curious with you because what happens is we end up taking on the identity of the diagnosis and, you know, maybe it's controversial, but I don't think that's the client only doing that. I think it's the clinicians as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And if I'm seeing someone as borderline personality disorder, instead of, I wonder what this person is really longing for, which is mm -hmm. love and connection. And if I'm in the symptoms and the behaviors and trying to navigate and negotiate that, not only is it exhausting, it's not effective. And, you know, we have clients, you know, the insurance companies dictate we don't get them as long as we all know we need them, right? Mm -hmm. Bottom line. I don't think there's anyone in this industry that says you're going to be great in 28 days. <laughs> For that's sure. What, that's what's happened, right? Yeah, now yeah, suddenly yeah. we all believe that's the model. Um, so what can we do in those 28 days? We can empower someone to realize that they do have the ability to heal and that there's something within them that is so powerful that can actually heal and that they're not their diagnosis, they're not their addiction. That's a symptom of something. So let's unplug from that and look at how we can start to return to our true nature. That can happen in 28 days. And that happens through experience, not teaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I think you're exactly right. And I think, yeah. you know, we mentioned managed care and the, the amount of skill I think it takes too to like, have all of these paperwork and, and diagnosis things in your head and then you close the door with the client or with the group and you let a lot of that go right. and you just be with people because it's all sitting out there and you got to pick it up and write a note and do all the things. But um, to create that genuine space um, with all that chatter, it, it takes a lot yeah. of skill and increasingly so. Yeah, and, 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 and I want to be clear. What I'm not saying is there's not something useful to that, and sure. we're all doing yeah. that, and that is intended to be helpful, and it can be helpful. What I'm saying is, in addition to the diagnosis right. and treating, mm -hmm. let's look at the ability yeah. for yeah. That, that cut to heal. Yeah, absolutely. Right? And, you know, we could get into a whole holistic, you know, conversation about physical health as well, but for this conversation, rather than looking at someone as their diagnosis, can I look at at very least, it's something they have, but it's not who they are. At very least. That's mm -hmm. at least a pivot that would make me really happy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the potential for transcendence to move away from the thing that I'm calling myself an object, an addict, into something that is, uh, has not only more potential that, but isn't just that thing at the end of the day. And I, 
this is what I really love about this part of the movement and the disruption of the industry and the disease model of care, right? If I no longer can adopt an attitude that I am this thing and see myself as a subject with real healing potential and power, I can actually move away from something called addiction. And that's gonna, that's gonna be a whole nother episode to yeah. talk about what that might look yeah. like for an individual at the end of the day. And I'm certainly not suggesting at the end of the day that that means somebody can use again in the future right, right. Um, because our, the situation is complex, subjectively yeah. speaking, right, for any individual. But I think that's a real powerful feature that has been kind of lost within this disease model where people are carrying away st continued stories about themselves three, five years, 10 years down the road that are just no longer true right. about them. Um, right, and even if it is a disease, like let's just start with, let's say we do buy into the disease model. <clears throat> we want to be curious about what caused the disease. Right. Like right. even if we do have that framework, and mm -hmm. I, I personally, okay, sure. I could say it is and I can say it isn't. Yeah. But what I ask is what gets created, and we, this, this came up yesterday, but what gets created when I say to someone or to myself, you have a chronic, lifelong illness that can never be cured but only treated one day at a time, right? And that can be really disempowering. <laughs> so depressing, yeah. Like, yeah. Now, now yeah. some people would say that's yeah. empowering right. because For I sure. know I have this disease and I know I need to take my medicine every day. So I, yeah. I hear that narrative. But if we're saying, and you, you pointed to it, I'm just an addict or an alcoholic, so I'm never gonna be able to do this. Right. Right, and it just simply isn't true. Yeah. Oh. And it is a collective narrative that, that we've started to, and, and you know, take it a step further to be a little more controversial. You know, we, we believe that there's a chemical in, imbalance in the brain that causes some of these, what we call disorders. But we literally don't know if that's true. Now, sometimes it's been, Science has said, oh, it's true. Oh, wait, it's not quite true. Yeah. And I, I'm not, I'm not um, there's nothing wrong with that because true science is continuing to explore. Right, right. So there's validity in that. But what, does, what gets created when I say, well, you have this chemical imbalance, so we just need to treat it. You can right. never actually heal that. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how long it prolongs the potential solution that's right. over here, right? right? Well, you develop, your, your whole identity is just a collection of symptoms after a while, yeah. right? You just become symptoms. And, it's, um, and I think that, to your point, you lose that whole self. You lose that connected self. You, you just start to identify it with your faults or, it, um, or your uh, coping strategies or, as you call them, brilliant your brilliant strategies. strategies. Yeah. And I think that that's a real, um, I think it takes people in the opposite direction. Yeah. Okay. Because that's not who we are. We're not a collection of symptoms. Right. Yeah. And, and the exciting part is now science is saying, oh, wait, maybe DNA isn't even solid. Maybe gen yeah. genes aren't even solid. Our brain isn't even solid, right? We know that through repetitive, usually they say through repetitive behavior, we right. change the grooves in our brains, right, of the neurotransmitters. We can literally change the brain. So even if someone says, I have a chemical imbalance in my brain, even if that's true, we can change it. Right. And I don't think we only change it through behavior but some of the deeper work and what you're speaking to is like, there's a place within me that's unharmed and unharmable. There's a place that within me that's greater than just this chemical imbalance, even if it exists. Right. And so I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but let's look at all the different possibilities, <laughs> physical, intellectual, emotional, and spiritual. Interesting. Right. So even yeah. if I do have a genetic predisposition to something, that doesn't mean I don't have the ability to start to change that. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and I think that's a unique component of um, this modality. Other modalities are specifically designed to gear how, why theirs is right and others are wrong. And this is so much more inclusive in its nature. It allows for 
all of the things can be right. Why yeah. not? Yeah, sure, whatever your, whatever your lens is, go ahead, take your lens, and then you can still use these tools. You can still approach things from this point of view because it doesn't actually say that your lens is wrong. It doesn't actually, it doesn't create more shame. It's this and. Right. And someone has at once asked me, can someone get sober and stay sober on conscious recovery alone? And my answer is, I hope not. Because yeah. <laughs> there's not one answer, yeah. right? Yeah. And I'm going to share with you all, I've never shared this, but I had a, mm -hmm. a nightmare and I woke up like startled. And the nightmare was I was dead. And there was a, a group, a conscious recovery group, and my picture was on the wall. And they were like, this is the one and only way. <laughs> TJ Woodward, once he was, right. and I'm like, oh my gosh, please no. Right. No, no, no. Right? Because this is a curiosity, right? And I hope, I sincerely hope that what I believe today won't be true in six months with more exploration. Or that right. I'll say, oh, there's more to it than that, right? Because, right. mm -hmm. you know, the, the, world, the world is flat. That was once a fact. Yeah. Right? It, was a, it was a shared fact. Now people are like, well, that doesn't mean it was true. Well, we now believe it's round, but who knows? There might be other yeah. things happening. Right? I keep Science telling Jason. Like, Maybe yeah. it's a hologram. <laughs> Maybe it's, right? yeah, so yeah. it's like, um, all I know is not all there is to know. Right. And that alone, right? That alone yeah. is like, there is no one answer. It doesn't just, need to yeah. be solved. It's disarming, but empowering right. at the same time. Which well, is, because people yeah. are, a lot of people are uncomfortable with not knowing. Right. And um, that is, I think, particularly true of uh, our clients who are in early recovery, right? Because mm -hmm. it can be very scary for them not yeah. to know. So predictability becomes way, a way they believe they're feeling safe. And that might be true for our industry too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let me, here's the way it works. Here's the science. Let me stay in this box. It's very comfortable. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's, and it's a, it's an excellent highlight of an industry in change and in the process of changing too, right? Because when we get stuck in narratives that we talked about on these episodes um, and with you know, multiple guests now, uh, uh, that when these narratives are in front of patient care, they become restrictive as well too, in a sense. So when somebody's, like you, you were talking about yesterday, you know, the person, well, he's drug seeking. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're here for drugs. That's and why they're here. Yeah, that's why they're here in the first place. We got to move past that. It's not, of course, right. that's what they're doing, right? right? But when we create those narratives, we move away from introspection. Right. And what is our opportunity in the moment to treat this individual to help them do something better than drug seek in right. this moment? And the challenge is really on us, not them, but so much of the historical application of treatment has been applied. Johnny's not doing the job, Johnny's drug seeking. If they just showed up better, if they just went right. to the meetings, if they just did 90 and 90, right. all this right. external stuff, and it seems so uh, restrictive and so uh, incoherent now, at least in what we experience at Peaks and what conscious recovery yeah, has I given mean, us. I remember the first time I started to question the narrative, well, everyone who relapses was someone who quit going to meetings. Mm -hmm. Like, and maybe that's true, but then I was like, well, but why did they stop? Why did they, you know, even if I have a judgment, why did they stop engaging with their support group? So what's actually happening? Because it's not just that external thing that caused it. There's something much more, much deeper happening. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> I think we've solved it, guys. Yeah, I, know. I, I think we've done it. Well, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I could talk, you know, I can talk for 10 hours. But, right. Uh, you know. yeah. So <laughs> clearly. Yeah. <laughs> as we do, uh, as we do wind up or wind down or whichever we're winding. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I want to go back to, um, I think the part of the brilliance of the conscious recovery is some of its simplicity of just like reminding us that we 
we're with people. Right. And, and I do tell the clinical team often, like, you know, all of these, uh, this curriculum we built and we have a binder this thick and how we introduce it to clients and all that. We are the tools though, it's the relationship. Um, and we can't lose track of that. And it's easy to lose track of it with all the noise going on, but, but um, people just need to know that they're not crazy. And, and that toxic shame gets resolved through these relationships and, and building the confidence. I was thinking of, I was meeting with one of our um, clients who's wrestling with a mental health issue and his only approach to this point in his life has been to take meds and, yeah. and the meds aren't working anymore. And I had to tell him like, hey, it, great news, it's time for you to show up and do your part too and like we're here with you and we'll, yeah. we'll offer you the tools but um, we can't do it for you. We can't do the lifting for you or with you though on this journey and, and, um, and it's such a great reminder uh, to all that. And uh, TJ, so with that, um, if you could talk to the camera and talk about conscious recovery, if you could do a little bit of a sales of what you do and what you're working on and what's oh, next. Wow. I think that'd okay. be great. Well, <laughs> conscious recovery is intended to help people reconnect with their true nature and unplug from the symptoms of addiction or mental health concerns and really look at what's underneath it and actually do the deeper healing. So whether you're a person in recovery, a clinician in private practice, you own or operate a treatment program, there's books, there's workbooks, there's online courses, there's trainings, which are also experiences, <laughs> uh, and there is curriculum. So we, my intention for you and for everyone on planet Earth, quite frankly, is to remember that you are a whole and infinite, perfect spiritual being. And if the word spiritual doesn't work, you have infinite potential within you. And so you can go to ConsciousRecovery.com to learn more. Um, also, um, I'll, I'll do a little plug for Wholehearted.org. I'm on that platform along with Gabor Mate, Marianne Williamson, and some other people. There's a bunch of free talks, some courses, um, whether you're a professional uh, in behavioral health or an individual in recovery. Thank you. And, and with that, we will wind up our episode. Um, uh, TJ, I want to thank you again for being yeah. here, and uh, thank Absolutely. you guys, too, for joining in this discussion. Um, yeah, it's just been a real honor, and um, I, I really uh, really enjoy having Absolutely. this conversation. Right. Uh, yeah. It feels really affirming. Please uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we do have a TikTok account rolling around out there. Um, Twitter. Twitter, I think, maybe, I don't know still? if Elon Musk is down, I don't know yet either. <laughs> um, if you have yeah. any questions, feel free to email us at questions at findingpeaks.com. Mm. And uh, with that, we'll sign off. Take care, everyone. Mm.